ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Oh, hi there. Happy Friday. I'm Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today. We've talked a bit about some of you getting an early start to harvest. Well, early to start, early to finish. Looks like it could be an early minute for some this year. More on that in just a moment. Also today, have you noticed a few new wool sheds going in around your area? Well, it turns out a new wool shed is a must-have item for some at the moment. Uh, 12 stand, nearly 2,000 square metres. They'll have 2,200 sheep on grading. We've got a 24-person lunchroom, toilets, storage facility for probably three to 400 bales. So, yes, yeah, it's a huge project. That is an impressive-sounding one. More on that to come in this half an hour too. But first today, for some farmers, particularly around the far west coast, harvest has finished as quickly as it started. Speaking to a few farmers around Sejuna, they finished with some hot days in September, meaning that they got going quickly. And despite the last two years of harvest dragging on for many, this year could see many wrapped up before Christmas, obviously, weather dependent. Brooke Neindorf caught up with Jake Hull. He's an agronomist at West Coast Ag in Streaky Bay to find out how about things are looking up that way. Uh, as a whole, pretty pretty good. Talking to growers, they're what I would call pretty happy with the results I've got, you know, as the season has panned out. So uh, as a whole, pretty good. So happy with quality and, and quantity? Yeah, the quality's been really good for the finish. Yields are variable. Uh, we've had a fair bit of frost around the place, which has played havoc with with what could have been a, an above-average harvest and probably drawn us back to average in, in most areas. Is frost usually an issue up that way on the West Coast? We do definitely get frost, some frost, most years, but not as widespread as this year. We had three major events occur, a couple in August and one in September, which, uh, yeah, really, really not crops around. We're seeing a, a, a lot of people getting started early, and we've also heard of, of some farmers up, uh, particularly around Sejuna, that have, have already finished. Are you finding that, uh, that there's a lot of people finishing early? There will be, yeah. So, obviously, harvesters are getting bigger and bigger. Guys can get over areas reasonably quick. We'll have a lot of areas finished harvest in the next fortnight on Upper EP. That's, that's amazing. It's not even, uh, you know... Uh, yeah, it just seems compared to, to last year when it was sort of almost going into January, February uh, for some people to, to finish up this early. I guess uh, you know, were you expecting that? Not really. The the, the shut off of spring hasn't helped um, at all. But we've also had a lot of areas sowing very early, uh, so crops were definitely maturing earlier. Uh, but we were hoping to that harvest would wouldn't start until at least November. But a uh, you know, a few hot days in September certainly turn crops off pretty quick. I guess it only needs a, a few days of uh, of rain, which we don't want, but, uh, yeah, it could, could uh, push things out. Yeah, weather, weather will hold, still hold guys up, and it's been pretty wear, variable weather already. Um, we haven't had a lot of, you know, warm days for guys to get full days in, so it's pretty, been pretty stop-start as it is anyway. Have many people tried different things this year, been putting in uh, more canola or more weed in particular? We've probably seen... You know, most guys stick to their to their plans. They might increase an area of, of legumes 
but you you tend to see most guys stick to their standard plans. Yeah, so I think the only the only cultivar that we've seen increase is probably lentils on upper EP in, in place of other other legumes. And are people pretty happy with what they're getting in at the silos in terms of prices, those that you've spoken to? Yeah, uh, you, you don't find many unhappy growers driving around. Obviously, things can always be better, but with, with the yields we're getting for the, for the type of finish we had and with prices where they are, guys are pretty happy. And I think, you know, knowing that they might be at the beach mid-November with everything tidied up and put away. I reckon that might make a few guys pretty happy as well after the last couple of years of just being non-stop flat out. You mentioned there about uh, about frost and many other issues that uh, that they face. Is there many mice around that you've seen? We're still seeing mice in paddocks. I'm hearing reports of reasonable numbers of mice, definitely. So hopefully it's long a long, hot, dry summer in a way so we can uh, we can dampen their numbers. Um, otherwise, there'll be an issue going into seeding next year. And with the potential early early finish for harvest, does that mean you also get an early break as well, Jake? No, I'll keep working, Brooke. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll keep floating around. I've got it pretty easy at the moment, really, but it's, I'm a bit like the growers. It's been, been two, two to two and a half really busy years with summer rainfall and, and longer seasons, so I'm looking forward to a bit of a bit of a relaxed period as well, to be honest. No, I, just, I guess I'd just like to wish everyone a, a happy and enjoyable harvest and a safe one. That's something we hope for everyone harvesting. Wherever you are in the process, uh, just about to get underway, midway through, almost ready to wrap up, uh, a safe and prosperous harvest is what we hope. Jake Hull there, he's an agronomist at West Coast Ag in Streaky Bay and he was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. It's 10 minutes past 12. Well, demand for new wool sheds has skyrocketed. Specialist wool shed builders are booked up for months in advance with some producers waiting even longer to get a new shed up. Karen Hunt found Greg Kendricks, a former shearer turned woolshed builder from Tintanara in South Australia, on site at his current project. She asked him about the demand that he's been experiencing. My own workload has always been you know, two years ahead, purely because I have a niche market in the state. But some of the bigger companies now, the Victorian companies, the New South Wales companies, have certainly encroached in South Australia and, and need to be here because the workload at the moment, the way the taxation stimulus money was and the sheep prices, no one can keep up with the work. Well, I guess that is the next big question with the uh, drop in sheep prices. Have you noticed anybody at this stage starting to think twice about putting up a new shearing shed? Not at this stage. Yeah, going forward as far as July, our clients are still confident in their plan for going ahead, going forward, hoping there's a turnaround. This is a very large shed that you're building here at Tilopia. Did you say 12 stand? Yes, uh, 12 stand, nearly 2,000 square metres. They'll have 2,200 sheep on grading. We've got a 24-person lunchroom, toilets, storage facility for probably three to 400 bales. So, yeah, it's a huge project. I'm guessing that this isn't the normal-type shearing shed that you would be constructing. What would be the average shearing shed? Three to five. I seem to be building a lot more fives rather than fours. The raised boards are definitely the way to go now. You wouldn't see very many that aren't raised boards? You wouldn't see a lot. I've probably only built four sheds that aren't curved raised boards in 19 years that I've been doing this now. And the amenities you were describing earlier, have they become more important now to attract and keep the staff? Essential. Like I say, I shore for 25 years and, and more and more women were coming into our industry and it was disgusting, for want of another word, that there was no toilet, let alone for men. 
but for women. And it's a pretty basic requirement, isn't it? Has it just been tax write-offs and the price of sheep that have driven the demand for new shearing sheds, or is it just that the old ones are too old? Both, I think, yeah. You go through Western Victoria and the, the way they are built up on stumps like a house frame, you can't shear in them anymore, you know. They've been patched up. The white ants have been through them, they've been patched up again, and a lot of it is replacement, for sure, or refurbishment, because it still is out there. The bloke that's got a 1,000 sheep can't afford to put up a $200,000 shearing shed because it's just not viable, is it? Do you see the end of this rise in demand? Is it going to flatten out? I mean, you can only build one shearing shed on a yeah. property. One of the biggest things now, especially with the next generation, the 30-something blokes that Dad's finally given them the reins, sheepyard covers. You've got to have one, pretty much. They've become very popular. It's just comfort. You're working people. You've, you've had, you have to do it. Has the rising cost of materials played a part in people's thinking about whether or not to build a new shearing shed? I thought it would have, but people make those plans and they make those commitments. But COVID and what came afterward, that was a building industry. Look, we saw price rises of 40% in three years. I would say there'll be a few people now that have to stop and think. This is probably the, the biggest shed that you've ever built, you said. What's the smallest? One stands. And, and I, <laughs> Do you I actually go, build a one yeah, stand yeah, shed? I built a one stand shearing shed for a gentleman down at Millicent who was just, you know, he's a hobby farmer. You know, we stuck it pretty much in a 30 foot by 30 foot corner of his shed and he had his one stand shearing shed. Greg Kendricks. For those who work in the wool industry, newer shearing sheds have a number of advantages, as Richard Rees, a shearing contractor from Mount Gambier, explains. Going into a new wool shed, they know that it's safe, it's designed well, there could be a, a wool lunchroom, a toilet, shower, everything, it's, everything's been improved. Is it a far cry from some of the wool sheds that you go into that are perhaps a little bit older? Well, yes, I'd say yes, there is a difference between the good ones and the bad ones. As a contractor, we've, it's our responsibility to make sure that the sheds are up to standard. Well, we put out a, a bit of a list what needs fixing or what not to try and help. Have you ever refused to go into a shed because it was unsafe? Yes, we have, yes. But you've got to look after your workers. If it's not safe, well, they can't go. Does it make it easier to find and retain staff if they know that they're going to be working in a place that is new or near new? Oh, that's that's for sure. If they know that the work environment's safe, the wool shed's up standard, they've got new evos, the catching pen doors are all good, everything like that, for sure. It's just a happy workplace, so you don't want to be going into a wool shed where the roof's leaking or you can fall through the floorboards or you've got old machines, what haven't been um, serviced and it just puts a damper straight away. That's Richard Rees from South East Shearing in SA ending that story from Karen Hunt. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, for the first time, a Black Hawk helicopter will be based in the state's southeast this summer as part of the aerial firefighting fleet. The announcement forms part of a $27 million set aside in this year's state budget to increase the region's firefighting capacity. So in total, six aircraft will be based in the southeast this summer, and that includes three bombers and two observation helicopters. Well, Deputy Chair of Green Triangle Forest Products, Laurie Hines, says that aircraft will work with the industry's existing firefighting initiatives. It'll go a long way to um, improving uh, greatly the fire protection and early detection and suppression uh, in, the, in the region. The industry itself uh, is uh, continuing to invest 
through an industry-funded helicopter in the, in the last two years, uh, that's, which will be upgraded to a, a larger capacity helicopter. Uh, we've just finished some work on the uh, establishment of uh, a new dam uh, in, a, in a strategic location. It's a proof of concept uh, dam that uh, we uh, have worked closely with the South East Drainage Board and the uh, Country Fire Service. And uh, that's been a, a great collaboration uh, and uh, appreciate their cooperation. And, and uh, we see this as uh, one of a number of additional water resources that will serve the uh, region very well in the future and add to the capacity and particularly the aerial attack side of it. You know, and of course, uh, through the uh, Green Triangle Fire Alliance uh, and the state government, the investment in uh, early detection through the camera network and particularly through the uh, improved artificial intelligence and its ability to be able to detect, detect fires early. And, you know, we see that as an absolute uh, fundamental key to um, mitigating and minimising fire across the landscape and making uh, communities safer and, uh, of course, protecting our assets. And uh, so, you know, we'll continue to uh, work closely with the government and, uh, as an industry, continue to invest to try and uh, manage fire much, much better than we have in the past, not to say that we haven't managed it well, but you can always continue and improve, and that's what we're really focused on. Laurie Hine there, the Deputy Chair of Green Triangle Forestry Products. Well, Livestock SA is encouraging farmers to get together and have a chat over a barbecue as prices for products like meat and wool don't look to be jumping back up anytime soon. $300 grants are available for eligible groups to put on a Red Meat Connects Communities barbecue. That's with help from PERSA and the South Australian Drought Hub. Livestock SA President Joe Keane says they want to help in a small way to bring communities together as it's getting so bad some farmers are having to euthanise some of their stock. Yeah, I guess as a livestock SA we thought about how we can support producers going through some times that we know our commodity prices have fell away dramatically and the climate predictions for the next 12 months or the next little while is certainly also very going to be very quite tough. So if that all eventuates, we can't do a lot around the production elements of people's businesses, but maybe we can get them all together to talk about their issues. This is the time when people can get into a bit of a down down situation and uh, if we can get them all together to have a community barbecue uh, and just talk about the issues and, and all realise that you're all in this together and we can all work through the, the issues and, and, and help each other out in, in these times. What are you seeing when it comes to what people are having to do when it comes to, to livestock and, and commodity prices? Are, are people having to just sell as you know as cheaply as possible or we've heard, even heard that some people are having just to, to put you know, sheep down because uh, because they just can't afford to keep them. Yeah, I think I think we've got to take stock that um, there are some probably activities that we're not really uh, happy to, that we have to do. Uh, some people I know with rams, especially the you know they're, they're just euthanising them and and uh, disposing of those. But uh, on the whole, I think in South Australia our season hasn't turned out as, as poorly as we as it could have as it has on in New South Wales and other places. But you know, given that. I think there is still a market for the majority of our stock, but we do know that it's a, a, we're at 50% of our cheap and cattle prices, 50% down from, from where it was 12 months ago. So that has significant impact on, on, on your budget and, and your ability to, to trade. So, or not the ability to trade, but ability to, to make profit. And, and I think we've got to understand that some people will be feeling uh, mentally challenged by that. And uh, so that's the reason for having some community get-togethers uh, on the lead-up to Christmas and having some barbecues where they can all feel um, hopefully
So eligible groups can apply for a grant to host their own barbecue. Tell us about what you know these groups are and, and, and what they need to do to, to put their name forward. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of criteria around it. It is a community group. I had somebody ring up and said, well, you know, my, our CFS has a community barbecue coming out, or has a barbecue coming out at Christmas. Well, I said, that's, that's absolutely going to be supported through this program, but um, what we'd encourage is, is if you're a... Say a CFS member, you actually bring a mate along, you bring your neighbours along, you bring other people within the community that might normally not come to a CFS barbecue, but bring a wider group of the community together. So, I, you know, I challenge people to say, well, if you're going to a community barbecue, bring the uh, neighbours down the road or, you know, uh, people that you don't normally see, just, just give them a ring and, and ask them if they'd like to like to come along. It's obviously a pretty busy time at the moment. People are starting to get into to harvest. Is there a timeline when they need to have these by or, or what would you encourage people to, to look at um, You know, having them by? No, no, we, there's no timelines in this. Um, obviously we've, we've got a limited number of uh, a limited amount of funding now so we can only uh, support uh, numbers of barbecues but I have actually had some early discussions and, uh, and I'm sure the team will continue those to see if we can get some more funding to, to support, you know, if, if if there's a need, let's hope that we can support it uh, going in the future and not just in the lead-up to Christmas but also in the new year because you know, we know there's lots of events on the lead-up to Christmas but perhaps after Christmas is a time when people get back on their farm and think about, oh, yeah, what's, what is and review their budgets and, and perhaps uh, feel a bit down. So, you know, the, the offer is there for, for as many as we can. And I guess that uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of grain farmers are livestock farmers as well, and you know maybe even might just need that break to, to get off the header and, and go and catch up with some mates and uh, chat over a, a sausage or two. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm, I mean I think this is a, a fairly open program that it's it's just about supporting communities and making sure that everyone's feeling in a good space as they head into Christmas, but also um, uh, feeling like they can get through this because we know the demand for our red meat is, is it's a premium product, and we know that the uh, international demand for it is, and it, you know, it is is very strong, and we, you know, it's not good at the moment, but I'm sure in the future we will we'll experience those some of those prizes that we've been uh, um, experiencing over the last 12 or 18 months. And I guess a good chance, like you just said there as well, to promote SA's uh, red meat products. Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, probably as farmers, most of us eat. But we're, we're really uh, lucky that we can actually experience the best uh, red meat in Australia, but. Yeah, but it, it's a matter of actually highlighting that um, we have got a good product. We should feel good about it. And uh, if we all uh, talk, discuss it together, we can actually lift our own spirits. And just finally, Joe, if people are interested, how do they get involved? Okay, they go on the Livestock SA website and there will be a link there for you to, um, to click into and, and put your application form in and then uh, they'll send out uh, an, an information pack and that information pack has all of the details of how to run the barbecue and all of those sorts of things, but it also has a, a link to all of the resources that can support producers through this, um, these times, and you know, like the Fab Mentors, the iFarm World Program, uh, the RBS support, all of those. There's some information around all of those resources, uh, and then obviously um, just sign up for the barbecue. If you have any queries, just please ring the office. Uh, in, in Adelaide and hopefully everyone uh, uh, in this lead up feels uh, you know, mentally uh, fit to be able to cope through these uh, tougher times and uh, I, I know the good times just around the corner we, we just know we've got a premium product and it's in demand across the world it's just uh, we've got a little bit of a, a hard time coming up uh, but I'm sure we'll all get through it if we all work together 
That's the president of Livestock SA, Joan Keynes, there. He's speaking with Brooke Neindorf. And for more information, if you'd like to put in an application, you can go to the Livestock SA website. And as Joe said, there's also links to a lot of resources there, especially for those who may be struggling a bit at the moment. And look, if you do need someone to talk to, please don't forget that you can call Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. That's their number. It's 25 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau and Mark Analak is our weather senior forecaster today. Hello, Mark. Good afternoon, Selena. Uh, so another very cold start for some here in South Australia this morning. Another cool one. Yeah. As expected, it wasn't as cold as uh, the previous morning, but um, down the southeast they did get below zero and, and three locations, uh, Padthaway, Narracourt and Keith, all got below zero last night. Keith was the, uh, was the winner there with a negative 3.1 degrees just after 5.30 this morning. Well, with these clear skies, um, we've pretty much got a sunny day right across the state. Um, looking at looking at the satellite picture, there's not a cloud in the sky, a bit of high-level cloud maybe just drifting across the, the southeast corner of the state, but really uh, not casting any shadows. A light east and northeasterly wind is starting to pick up in the west ahead of an approaching trough, so temperatures are on the rise, and we're seeing uh, temperatures out in the west getting up into the mid-20s already, so... Um, so a warm, warming up with these northerly winds and generally uh, sort of clear skies. Tomorrow, the trough will uh, linger, well, move into the far west of the West Coast District overnight tonight and tomorrow uh, it'll continue across the remaining um, parts of the Western Agricultural Area, push over Southern Agricultural Areas um, during tomorrow. So we'll have a bit of a southerly wind change for southern parts of the state. And then that trough will move into the southern parts of the pastoral districts on Sunday and pretty much hover over the pastoral districts for a couple of days. The high pressure system out to the west hasn't got enough energy to push that uh, trough any further north, so it just hovers around uh, at the weekend over the northern parts of the state. Over the weekend, we can expect generally fine conditions. It really is just a wind change, um, but... uh, once we get to Monday, we are expecting a cold front to bring showers to agricultural areas, possibly extending into the southern parts of the pastoral districts. But again, it's a short-lived system. Rainfall totals aren't expected to be too much. And by Tuesday, um, there might be just a lingering shower about the southeast, lower southeast coast or the limestone coast there, but um, should be pretty much gone by lunchtime Tuesday. So in terms of rainfall amounts, um, less than a couple of millimetres uh, if, you, if you're lucky, um, but about the southern coastal districts, or southern coastal areas, you might see very isolated falls of 2 to 5 or 2 to 10 millimetres between now and Tuesday night. And just quickly looking ahead to uh, the mid to latter part of next week, generally settled conditions Another high-pressure system will push in south of the Bight and pretty much stay there from Wednesday to Friday. So the mid to latter part of next week will be under under the influence of that high-pressure system, directing southeasterly winds, maintaining mild to warm conditions about agricultural areas, uh, fairly dry. I, I don't think we'll see too much in the way of rainfall um, and dry conditions for the north with mostly, mostly clear skies and uh, warm to hot temperatures persisting about the north. All right. Thanks for that, Mark. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Mark Analak there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow.
Upper Western District, a sunny day forecast with east to southeasterly winds, 15 to 20 k's now, tending east to northeasterly, 15 to 25 k's now early in the morning. They'll become light by the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures getting down to between 9 and 13. Daytime temps around 30 degrees. For the Lower Western District, a mostly sunny day tomorrow with northeasterly winds, 15 to 25 k's now. They'll turn north to northwesterlies, 20 to 30 in the late morning with overnight temperatures falling to around 9. In the day, they'll climb up to around 30 degrees. It's coming up to half past 12 here on The Country Hour. You're with Selena Green. Uh, a major global award for a South Australian winery. We'll have a chat to them in this next half an hour. And I know China, a big export market for South Australia and hopefully one returning for a lot of our commodities. But where else in the world wants what we grow and produce? You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. I'm here until one o'clock on this Friday. Well, it's got a population of 1.4 billion people and they're increasingly wanting our wine, our lentils and other crops as well. I'm talking about India and you'll learn a little more about the efforts to grow that export market for South Australian produce very shortly. Also, our state has an oversupply of red wine grapes, particularly Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon. So what are the other varieties that our growers are looking to explore now instead? Santorinico, which is a Greek white variety from Greece. We also have Muscaton, Alberino, Vermentino, Montepulciano and Saparavi, which is the Georgian one. So all these varieties are suited to Mediterranean warm climates that we come from. So maybe a few different varieties being grown here in South Australia for you drinkers to try. We'll learn more about that soon too. But first, we need to get headlines and Richard Davies has them for you on this Friday. Hi, Richard. Hi, Selena. Cabinet Minister Tony Burke says there needs to be a greater understanding of the separation between Palestinians and the terrorist group Hamas. Mr Burke says many Australians who have come out in support of Palestinians amid the Israel-Gaza war have wrongly been accused of supporting the Hamas terrorist organisation. Authorities say there are now major fires burning in every region of the Northern Territory. Firefighters are monitoring 14 fires across the NT. Meanwhile, Queensland firefighters say it's still too dangerous for residents to return to their homes in Tara on the Western Downs. 32 properties have been destroyed in a bushfire that's burnt through more than 20,000 hectares. And the state government is joining forces with the Tatiara Council to help address a severe housing shortage in Bordertown. The government will give more than $2.5 million to help the council build 60 houses on vacant land in the town. Civil works will begin next year and construction in 2025. There'll be more news at one o'clock. Thanks, Richard, for those headlines. Well, a massive win overnight for a Barossa Valley winery, which has taken out the 2024 Best of Wine Tourism Awards in Switzerland. Alkina Wine Estate took out the Global Award for Wine Tourism Accommodation, recognising them as the best amongst the 12 great wine capitals around the world. Amelia Nolan is the Managing Director at Alkina. Welcome to the country and good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Selena. How are you? Very good. And you must be, uh, well, buzzing because this is uh, a pretty significant award. Congratulations. How does it feel to, to receive an international recognition of this level? Uh, it's fantastic. We're uh, absolutely thrilled to have received this award. First thing this morning uh, when we found out, yeah, my team were very excited. So yeah. am I. So how do you feel that South Australia has been represented on this stage and, and, you know, looking at the other wine regions that you are up against, you know, uh, wineries in Bordeaux and the Napa Valley, to have South Australia and and, uh, the Barossa represented globally, that must mean a lot. Yes, it does. And I think it's fantastic because, you know, recognition against these and, and being compared to these amazing regions around the world is really important. Uh, and we want we want the Barossa certainly to be seen as a global wine destination. So yeah, very, very pleased about that, absolutely. Tell us a bit more about the the accommodation and the tourism experience that you've built there. What it started with the farm and the winery that came first? Yes. So we purchased the farm back in two thousand fifteen. And it, it's a 40-hectare farm just behind Greenock uh, in the Barossa. And it had beautiful old vines and also some old buildings, which were sort of falling down, built in the 1850s. But I could see that it was a place that had great bones. So we set about working on restoring one of the, the old barns was turned into a winery and a small winery, and another one uh, we restored to a one-bedroom cottage. The little homestead we've made into a two-bedroom house with um, a big open living space, kitchen, fireplace, uh, and then the third old building the from the 1850s, which was built as the original woolshed, we turned into our tasting room and our entertaining area. So, And it's all interlinked with... Gardens and kitchen garden, trees, pathways. Um, and so it's a sort of village in amongst our 40 hectare vineyard. When people come and stay uh, and visit, what, what do you hope they get out of the experience and take away with them? Well, I think the great thing about having accommodation on site is that it, it can become a very immersive experience. So, you you know, you, you, you sense, the, the feeling of what the Barossa is and what it is to live amongst vineyards. When you go into the evening, you, you put your fire on and, and all of the galahs come out and the, the wind calms down and it becomes very still and calm. And, you know, the light in the Barossa is amazing. And then in the morning, we've got big windows throughout the accommodation and the, the morning light comes in and you might get some kangaroos coming up. You might take a walk around the property or into the, the little town of Greenock, which has got a great restaurant, Elisanko, and also a fantastic pub, the Greenock Tavern. So it's a, it's a nice community and it's, it's a nice location and it's a, it's a very immersive Barossa experience. And it seems like these are the type of experiences and uh, your winery is a great example of that, that South Australia seems to be really good at and that uh, consumers are wanting more and more these uh, opportunities to come onto wineries and onto properties to stay, to learn a lot more about what you do and how you do it. Yeah, I think so. Um, we, we offer lots of options in terms of, of food and, and things that we can do for people. We often suggest that people go out for lunch to one of the several amazing restaurants that we have in the Barossa and then come back in the evening and we'll organise something light for them to have 
and a, and a couple of bottles of wine and just sit back and relax and enjoy the atmosphere. So, yes, I think that it's, it gives you a little bit more than just going and visiting places when you get the chance to stay on a wine estate. And, and, and lots of these countries around the world have been doing this for quite some time. And, and you know, I think it's great to have an offering like it's in South Australia. Mm. Where are people coming from when they come to stay? Are you getting a mix of, you know, more locals, uh, interstate, international visitors? Yes. Well, actually, all of those. And it is quite a mix. I, we opened during COVID, which was interesting. Mm. So actually, our first uh, and some of our really loyal visitors who've, who've been back several times are Adelaide people who were just looking for somewhere to get away to when, when we couldn't leave the state. So, and, and they've been back, several of them have been back several times, and which is wonderful. But in the last year and a half, I guess, we've now seen more people coming from, from Sydney, Melbourne, Western Australia, Queensland, regional areas around Australia, and we've had people from the US and uh, Europe um, and Asia. So it just in the last year, it's just we've just started to see those international visitors come back, which is great. Something tells me that you might get a few more of them yeah. now that, that this, the word is out. Absolutely. Um, I hope yeah. so. Well, Amelia, congratulations yeah. again to you and everyone involved um, in this award. It is a significant one and, and how great to have it, uh, you know, recognised for South Australia. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Selena. Thanks very much. Amelia Nolan is from Alkina Wine Estate in the Barossa Valley. They're the winner of the Wine Tourism Award at the Global Best of Wine Tourism Awards that happen overnight in Switzerland. You are with Selena Green. It's 22 minutes to one. Well, in the past week, you may have heard that China has announced it'll start a five-month review into the massive tariffs that it placed on Australian wine imports. That's hit our winemakers pretty hard. Well, the Trade Minister, Nick Champion, has been down in the southeast of the state for country cabinet this week. But soon he'll be heading overseas for another trade delegation, looking to other markets that South Australia could sell its products to outside of China. He joins me now. Minister, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, firstly, as uh, the Trade Minister for the State, I imagine uh, over the weekend, the uh, announcement out of China, that review of tariffs on wine must have come as uh, some music to your ears. Look, it's certainly good news, uh, but we know the hard work doesn't stop. We've now got sort of five months of Australian government and the Chinese government working together to fully resolve the, the tariffs on wine going to China. So it's really welcome news and a continuing part of the stabilisation of the two countries' relationships and, and of course, the expanding trade relationships. Now, you've been in the southeast for the past couple of days. As part of your visit, you have had a chance to meet with uh, those involved in the wine industry in the region. Uh, is that something that has come up a, as an issue for them? Look, it has. And, of course, people are uh, sort of more confident than they than they were before the announcement. Um, but they know diversification is still a really important challenge for the industry. We've got to make sure it's a, a premium uh, export that's that's going out from Australia. We may need to make sure we've got a lot of different markets. Um, but of course, having the China market come back online uh, will be incredibly important. We have heard uh, reports of that has uh, created well, one of the factors that has created a bit of a glut of wine in some regions, particularly in the in the Riverland growing area. Have you had similar reports back to you from uh, wineries in the Limestone Coast, albeit some of them are you know smaller producers? 
Look, it's really important to understand that the wine industry is many different industries, and obviously, you know, down the line, Stone Coast, it's a more premium product. Uh, it's heading out to different markets, and and you know, it has there have been difficulties over the last twelve months, uh, to be sure. Um, what we've really got to do is focus on premiumisation and diversification for, for of markets. Um, in the case of the Riverland, they are facing a very you know difficult period because. Uh, inland uh, grapes uh, are sort of a more volume-based uh, business, and really the only market there was China. So, uh, you know, that market is probably not going to return to what it once was, uh, and so we've got to continue our pathway out, but each region's got to have its own particular strategy for, for dealing with the circumstances that we face. So not all the eggs in the China basket, as we've discussed before. You're looking to uh, put some eggs perhaps in the basket of trade to India and you've got a delegation that you're heading there next month? Yeah, that's right. November, uh, and India is a you know, really uh, important market for Australia. We've seen an absolute explosion, 200% increase in, in lentils going to, to India. So already just on the back of um, the trade agreement done between the two governments, there's been this, you know, really, uh, you know, massive increase in, in sort of lentil exports uh, in just one year. And so obviously that's good for farming communities. On wine, um, it'll be a, a longer-term uh, market, I think, and, and one that we have to focus on, but it, it really is a big market. So um, uh, as countries' income goes up, typically wine consumption goes up as well, and I, I think we'll see that in India over time. And what, this is your first uh, trade delegation to India? Yeah, that's right. And based around, obviously, tech, which is huge in, in India, uh, defence, um, obviously looking at wine as well and, uh, and investment, um, because obviously there's a, a big, a pretty good relationship already between India and Australia, and we've already got uh, a number of Australian Indians uh, residing in, in South Australia, so the people-to-people relationships are, are really easy and, and good. Uh, and, of course, it's one of the world's biggest democracies, so they have a similar rule of law uh, and democratic values as, as we do. Legumes, pulses, they're very keen on that out of South Australia at the moment. Wine, something that can look to grow. Are there any other areas of export, uh, particularly for our agricultural industries that uh, you're hoping to grow in the Indian market? Uh, look, wheat's uh, come on in India as well for the first time since 2020. So, uh, look, it's a, it's a market that obviously is expanding um, in wealth um, and it's, a, you know, it's a, in many cases a highly sophisticated, high-tech economy um, and it's also huge. So I have no doubt we'll see that market grow, particularly for agricultural products, but importantly also um, we'll see international students coming to South Australia, we'll see... Some of those students uh, remain in South Australia and obviously they'll make a, a contribution to the workforce as well. So it's, it's a really multifaceted opportunity uh, and a very important one in the, in, the, in the sort of medium to long term. Minister, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Elena. As Nick Champion joining me, he was the he is the South Australia's Minister for Trade and Investment. It's just going on sixteen minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Well, around a third of grapes crushed here in Australia are either Shiraz or Cabernet Sauvignon. But with those varietals in oversupply, how are growers responding? Well, in Australia's biggest wine-producing state, 
grafting and planting of lighter reds and whites is on the rise. South Australian Riverland grape grower Jim Marcaeus has decided to change up his t- 20% of his vineyards in Redmark and he told Eliza Berlage which varieties he decided to graft. Santorinico, which is a Greek white variety from Greece. We also have Muscaton, Alberino, Vermentino, Montepulciano and Saparavi, which is the Georgian one. So all these varieties are suited to Mediterranean warm climates that we come from. So last year what we did, we chopped the top of the vines off and then it was just basically the trunk left and then a grafter came in and grafted the new buds onto the trunk and then it started growing from there and then we trained it up to the wire. So these vines will be about 80% into production this year so we'll get a decent crop off them and then the following vintage will be 100% cropping level so we've theoretically only missed out on one vintage. How did you decide which varietals would suit the region and, and what you're trying to do? So the majority of these varieties that we're putting in come from Mediterranean countries. So we have a dry climate here in the Riverland. It's sun-drenched. We get about 220 mils of rain per year. We have long, hot summers. So these indigenous varieties to those Mediterranean countries of Greece, Spain, Italy will be very well suited to our climate here in the Riverland. Your family is Greek and and your mother came over from Greece. Is is there a lot of excitement from the family and and I guess the Greek community about hearing some of these varietals making a splash in Australia's wine industry? Yeah, it's definitely exciting. We're finally getting to grow some varieties from our heritage, which which is a great talking point, but it's also very interesting to see these indigenous varieties from Greece as well. And what the great experience is, is that it gives a better experience of wines that can be grown in our region and in Australia in general. So it's all about having fun with wine and eating good food and socialising with your friends, and that's what it's all about. Riverland grape grower Jim Marquias speaking with Eliza Berlage. And it's not just the Riverland which is looking to diversify. Susie Harris and her family have traditionally focused on Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay at their Hyenham vineyard in the southeast. But after observing recent consumer trends, she and the family made the decision to start grafting across some of their grapes. We are changing some of that Cabernet over to Pinot Noir. We just find that consumers are drinking a lot more lighter reds and so we wanted to be able to uh, tap into that market. So we, we will keep some Cabernet and Shiraz uh, and the Chardonnay and then we will you know, we'll have some Pinot as well. So you think that's a long-term trend that's going to be sticking around to make that change worthwhile? Yes, I certainly would be reluctant to jump on any great variety trend that came along but I do think that Pinot is a a classic variety and it's here to stay so yeah so we we believe that that will be drunk uh, widely into the future. And how have you been finding the process? Is this something you've had to do before? We have done some grafting before. It is quite involved and it's quite risky, but it is cheaper than pulling out vines. And so it's, it's, you get a crop, you miss one year of production and then get a crop the following year rather than if you pull vines out and re and put in new plants you it takes about three years so there's a benefit there but it's it's a it's a risky thing to do uh in that all the grafts don't always take so yeah so we just we've decided to go down that route but i can understand that people aren't always keen to do that Heinem wine grape grower susie harris So is the risk and the expense of grafting across your grapes really worth it? 
Associate Professor Steve Goodman from the University of Adelaide is both a wine production and wine marketing expert. He told me it likely is. I asked him how often wine trends shift. Sauvignon Blanc really over the last 20 years has been the only one big trend that's taken on big market share. But what we're seeing, if you put all of the other alternative varieties together, they together have become a big segment of the market, which has become attractive. We're starting to see consumers wanting to explore. It is quite a big expense for growers to graft over or plant new vineyards completely. How cyclical in nature are wine trends? Is there a chance that in a few years people will be back to Shiraz or is this more of a case that it really is expanding with the variety people are wanting to drink and and you'll expect it to stay that way? There's probably two sides to that coin. big problem over the last 12, 18 months has been the China tariff on on Australian wine. That's really hurt South Australia because a lot of our traditional, our Shirazes, our Cabernets, go to China. So that that has really led to a surplus. The second segment is that we've also seen a move towards lighter style wines, wines that sit nicely next to food rather than completely dominate. So we've seen growth in things like Pinot Noir. We've seen growth in things like Cabernet Franc and other varieties, that typical big Barossa, Shiraz, they aren't that big McLaren Vale Grenache, but they're doing that nice little dance that sits alongside food and gives consumers something more to remember because they tried something different. So put that in as well, you're seeing a shift in the market where there is now quite a demand for lighter style varieties. And some of those more niche varieties, are they mostly consumed within the country or is it difficult to export those types of varieties? It's very hard for smaller exporters, for the niche growers that are growing those alternative varieties, it's a lot harder for them to export. So exporting something like Shiraz or Cabernet to known markets, it's still very complicated, but is an easier path to access. If there's smaller amounts being made, there isn't as much that's also needed to be exported. So they can satisfy a local market. So there's opportunities for exporters to do something different into those markets, but it's then the difficulty of, A, they're competing against the local varietals, So it's a smaller percentage of the market that's willing to try varieties more associated with the old world that come from the new world. So if you were going to start a vineyard, what mix of grapes would you be planting? Purely from a personal point of view, knowing how saturated the market is with all the larger varieties, if I was doing something, it would be on a smaller scale. I would be doing non-traditional varieties. I would be looking at the Fermentinos, the Nero Davlers, the Cab Franc, because it would enable me to give something a little bit different to the marketplace. Now they say variety is the spice of life and there's plenty of variety out there. That is Associate Professor Steve Goodman from the University of Adelaide ending that report from Elsie Adamo and Eliza Berlage. And hey, if you'd like to read more about this, they've got a great story up online on our website right now and you can find it at abc.net.au forward slash rural. It's eight minutes to one. You're with Selena Green. Well, finally today, anyone who is visiting or living along the River Murray here in South Australia can now get forecast river levels and flood warnings from the Bureau of Meteorology. The Bureau's service now no longer stops at the South Australian border. So as of yesterday, flood forecasts and warnings along the basin can be found through a single source. Kylie Egan is the Bureau's Hazard Preparedness and Response Manager here in South Australia, and I asked her what information they're now providing. The Bureau of Meteorology will be responsible for issuing flood forecasts and flood warnings for minor, moderate and major flooding um, for the South Australian section of the River Murray. 
so this um, information will be available on our website under the current warning or warning summary area or via our app when there is a flood occurring in the River Murray in South Australia and we'll include information like the river heights expected at different locations and the timings of, of peaks of the, of the river and if possible contextualising that information like how comparable is it to recent events or that type of thing, how, how significant is this, is this flood event. Um, so yeah, we'll be able to forecast the peaks of, of the flood events and the recessions and um, all of this is done in collaboration with MDBA, Murray-Darling Basin Authority, uh, SASES and of course Department for Environment and Water. So previously, people might have got flood warnings from the SES. Will they still be doing that? Is this a replacement of them? Absolutely. No, absolutely. It is um, a complementing service. So the Bureau um, will have information on our website, as you'd get any other flood warning information or um, other hazard or weather weather warning. Those River Murray flood warnings will be available in that usual location. Um, SASES have been providing impact-based warnings for flooding along the River Murray, um, as we've seen during our recent events. That'll still continue. The SES will still be focused on impacts on the ground and um, impacts to, to community. So that, that'll still continue along with our service. Right. So this is about, uh, I guess, having all of that information in one place, sort of a one-stop shop or a consistent message uh, as well? Com- that's completely right. And, you know, that the Bureau has been providing uh, flood warnings for upstream of the border. So in, in Victoria and New South Wales, there's been flood warnings for the River Murray. But the information that comes from the Bureau has been stopping at the border, which is really not a satisfying service for community and, and you know, Australia as a, as a whole. So um, we're starting to see that, well, the next flood event for the River Murray, we will see the Bureau providing that information for South Australia, along with our partner agencies being SA, SES and, and DEW, um, providing that flood information. So, yeah, it's just an extra layer, extra information that will be available, um, putting it all in one spot, as you've said. So directing people to SA, SES website for impact-based information, but information about the river heights, the flow and the timing of the peaks will all be available on the Bureau uh, website. And as you said uh, earlier, so this is from the South Australian border along the river and is it the entire sort of length of the river here in South Australia? Yeah, so there's 15 forecast locations that the Bureau will be providing a forecast for in a flood across the, the South Australian section of the Murray River. Um, the lower lakes and around the, the mouth will still be predicted and, and uh, managed by DEW, so information about the lower lakes will still be from Department of Environment and Water, but the other parts of the River Murray will be provided by the uh, Bureau of Meteorology. And understand this is something that the Bureau and the Department and all of the agencies involved have been sort of working on for quite some time? That's correct, yeah. As you can imagine, the, the River Murray is a very complex um, river system, particularly as we get into to South Australia, and there's a lot of agencies and stakeholders involved in managing water in, in the River Murray. So it hasn't been a simple um, transition. There's been a lot to work through, a lot to understand um, to make sure that anything we're providing is you know, hitting the mark and it's up to the level that we expect when providing community information. So it has been a, a long work in progress and the, the recent flood event um, has in some ways given us some really good data to, to help ground truth the information and the modelling that the Bureau will be, be using to predict the river heights in the River Murray. So it has been many years coming that this has, has taken. 
So, Kylie, as you say, this information is available from now. If, if someone along the river or perhaps heading there uh, as a visitor or a traveller or a local, whatever, the easiest way for them to find this information to see what the forecast levels might be like or if there's any warnings in a particular location, how can they go about that? Yeah, so if they're particularly interested in warnings, the Bureau Warning Summary tab for South Australia will have that information if there are any current. But if you're just interested in what the actual height is at a certain forecast location around along the River Murray, um, that data is available on our website as well, regardless of the height of the river. Um, that's available any day of the year through our river heights and rain data um, information. So that's there 24-7 for you to have a look at and, and see what that, the height of the river is at any of those 15 forecast locations. And I understand if people are using the app, they can also set up an alert system in case there's any warnings in a, in a particular area they want to know about? That's right. So you can set up your notifications for your location or any other location you're interested in. And if you're five kilometres within, if a warning um, is issued within five kilometres of, of your home radius, you will see a notification come through. So that could be something quite useful if you um, live along the river and you're interested in seeing uh, warnings come through to your phone via your app. Or even if you're travelling, it's, it's a place that you're, you're looking at travelling, you're unfamiliar with the area, you could set up a notification to come through um, just in the off chance that a warning did come through during the time you were travelling in the area. That's Kylie Egan there, who is the Bureau of Meteorology's Hazard Preparedness and Response Manager in South Australia. You can access those flood warnings and forecast flood levels now via the Bureau's website, but also via their app. The State Emergency Service will continue to provide impact-based flood warning advice for local communities for the entire River Murray here in South Australia. And the Department of Environment and Water will also continue to provide information on river conditions and flow forecasts during times of flood. But uh, there's plenty of information, so whether you're living on the river or planning a trip there with a family anytime soon, uh, good to have an idea of sort of the conditions as you're heading there. Uh, Speaking of great apps... Uh, the ABC Listen app is a great app where you can find a heap of ABC content, uh, audio content, including the South Australian Country Hour. So if you'd like to listen back to anything that you may have missed, uh, you can find it on the ABC Listen app. Sonia Feldoff is coming up on your radio this afternoon. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Selena. Yes, we've got some really um, disturbing information, I guess, for those who are involved in the construction industry. You'd know there's been some concerns around this engineered stone for some time. Mm. Uh, and South Australia has been one of those who's really been leading the way in the response to this. Now with that leaked Safe Work SA report, ministers from all over the country are discussing today whether to release that officially to the public. But there is no doubt that the recommendation is a ban. We're going to be talking about uh, that, what that means if you've got that um, engineered stone centrepiece in your kitchen. What does that mean for you? What does it mean if you're a worker in the industry? Plus, Malala's father, Nobel Peace Prize winner, pushing for girls' education. He's here in Adelaide. You'll hear from him here, only on ABC Radio Adelaide. What a fantastic conversation. Make sure you stick around for that with Sonia Feldoff this afternoon. Happy Friday, news time. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.